Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. We're going to talk about television today with television's greatest reigning critic, Emily Nussbaum. She's got a Pulitzer Prize. That's all you need to know. Television is so domestic, right? It's really the art that's in our homes in a way that no other art is. And that's why television tends to be a way that we process our own realities as opposed to a way that we dream. We go to the movies to dream. I mean, television, even when it made a science fiction series, it made Star Trek, not Star Wars. Star Trek is basically a workplace drama that happens to take place in outer space. We'll be talking about this and lots of other lofty considerations of that medium you take for granted right after this. Hi, this is Colin. So there's a throwaway line in Emily Nussbaum's new book, I Like to Watch, subtitled, I have to pick it up to read that part, uh, subtitled Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution. And the throwaway line occurs in the middle of her interrogation of product placement, which is now known as product integration. And it's a fascinating uh, piece in the book. But she discovers an interesting bit of product integration on the show 30 Rock involving a product called Soy Joy. And it's an easy thing to miss because Nussbaum, like me, has never heard of Soy Joy. It sounds kind of like a funny product name that Tina Fey would make up. So she winds up mentioning this, that she's never heard of Soy Joy, to a woman whose job it is to get exposure for products like Soy Joy. And the woman says, in exasperation, do you watch television? Which is a really funny question to ask Emily Nussbaum. Of course she does. She won a Pulitzer Prize for watching television and writing about it for The New Yorker. She's with us for the whole uh, uh, show today. And before we let her speak, let's go back in time to 1958, when probably only white men were allowed to speak anyway. And uh, my dog's getting very excited about the show, too. Uh, here's Edward R. Murrow speaking to the Radio Television News Directors Association Convention, October 15th. 1958. Our history will be what we make it. And if there are any historians about 50 or 100 years from now, and there should be preserved the kinescopes for one week of all three networks, they will there find recorded in black and white or perhaps in color evidence of decadence, escapism, and insulation from the realities of the world in which we live. We are currently wealthy, fat, comfortable, and complacent. We have currently a built-in allergy to unpleasant or disturbing information, and our mass media reflect this. But unless we get up off our fat surpluses and recognize that television, in the main, is being used to distract, delude, amuse, and insulate us, then television And those who finance it, those who look at it, and those who work at it may see a totally different picture too late. 
Well, thank God we finally fixed that wealthy, fat, comfortable, and complacent thing. We just elected one of them president and uh, let him run the country. But Emily Nussbaum, in a way, Murrow is setting up the notion of a TV revolution, if there can be one, if there will ever be one. But it is worth noting that old view of television, that it was, you know, basically not any good unless proven otherwise. Yes, I think that that was definitely the attitude that people had toward television. And in the book, I try to talk about the the changes in that. But I have to say, a lot of the concerns that people had about television early on were completely legitimate. I mean, the concern was that it would sedate people, that it was an essentially commercial thing, that it wasn't really art because it was driven by advertising and that it was essentially formulaic. It was just there to kill time. And I think those anxieties about television have carried on and they still, you know, operate today. Although at this point, it's so radically changed as a, as a medium in general. But that particular idea that television is only worthwhile if it can prove itself as educational and positive, I think at one point in the book, I talk about the idea of TV as pouring what what do you pour into the into the aqueduct in order to strengthen people's teeth and bones Um, fluoride fluoride exactly like the idea that tv is not a creative medium or anything other than something that's meant to strengthen society and if it's not doing that it's weakening society and that's the only way to judge it and i don't think people talk about other art forms that way and i think that that's something that's hung over television for decades yeah. And, you know, I mean, you can even see it in Mad Men when uh, Don Draper, you know, gets a new television set. It's essentially a more interesting piece of furniture than most of his furniture. He doesn't regard it as a source, source of art. And, and a lot of things have happened since then, even with the physical reality of televisions, right? They don't sit on the floor in a console anymore. They hang on our wall. So television has at least moved from being some piece of, piece of high point furniture to being, you know, at minimum a poster and maybe art of some kind. And really, people don't watch it on the wall anymore either. I mean, there have been such rapid changes in the technology that literally during the time that I was writing, the time that I was publicizing, and the time that I, you know, just as the book came out, the, the technology of TV, which is inextricable from what it can do as art, has changed. So at this point, I, I mean, lots of people watch on their computers. They watch on their phones. I have a million apps on my phones and, Now they're trying to do this quibby thing that's like seven minute episodes that's bound to fail. But each of these changes, uh, uh, you know, redefines what it is. But the thing about the idea of it as furniture in the living room is so fascinating to me because I I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it was such an invisible aspect of TV that it just sat there, this huge console, and you just walked past it. And if you watched it, everybody else was watching with you. So... The idea that TV had to be for the whole family was partially a pragmatic idea because it's not as though you could keep your kids from watching. There wasn't like a private place that you could watch it. But at this point, people stream it into their phones. And I really think it changes the way that people think of the capacity of it and what kinds of things you can watch it simultaneously, privately and publicly talking to people. 
Right. Although I think that thing that you're describing, though, is it's so bred into the DNA of television that I'm, I'm not sure it'll ever go away. You know, that kind of idea that, yes, as you walk through your house, you're not going to run into somebody looking at a Rothko or there's not going to be a little string quartet set up there playing Schubert unless you live in a very unusual house. You know, there's but there, there might be somebody watching a TV and you might sit down and watch the last 35 minutes of Law and Order or whatever is on. And there there is, I think, a sense in which television, it's so domestic. It's why so many of the early shows were either uh, domestic comedies or workplace shows. There's a sense in which TV kind of lives in our world uh, or has in a way that movies don't, right? We use movies to dream. We use TV to process our actual realities. Does that make sense? You know, I actually... I think that's too broad. I mean, I, first of all, I think movies do a lot of different things, yeah. but there's so many different kinds of television that it's hard to summarize it that way. I do think people use television to dream. I think that it's a, a place where we talk out loud about things and it has a public quality, but there's certain kinds of TV that feel, I hate the word cinematic because it's a weasel word, but the, the, the nature of TV is something that's not merely driven by sitcoms and workplace comedies as much as I like them. I mean, it's just broadened so much. So I don't think it can be summed up in that way. It's weird because people people are always, like for a while when I started writing about TV, people would come up to me and say the classic, like, I don't even own a television, but mm-hmm. I like blah, blah, blah. And I do think that that's faded somewhat, that idea. But the yes. truth is there are lots of people who don't watch, who don't own a television in the way that you're talking about, where you walk in, and you see someone else. That said, I, I think you're absolutely right about the domesticity of TV and how it haunted what you could put out in it. Like you had to invite it in every week. And it wasn't just because it was sitting in your living room. It was because it was serialized. It came in weekly. You had to keep saying yes to it. So that idea of it having to be mass and acceptable so a broad audience would keep saying yes to it, I think dampened the notion that you could ever take certain kinds of risks early on that you could alienate or frighten people, certainly that you could bore or confuse them. And the technology and the change in the economics of TV has really made a place for that. So the thing you're talking about, about dreamlike TV and TV that you enter into rather than just watch as a kind of shared entertainment with people, I I think has been a real phenomenon that's been going on over the last 20 years. Yeah, I would start. I would peg it really for the first time in 1990 when David Lynch does Twin Peaks on television. And I, you know, I'm a little older than you. I had never seen anything like that on television, and that was, you know, so. I mean, prior to that, when television wanted to make something about outer space, they didn't make Star Wars. They made Star Trek, and Star Trek is basically a workplace drama that happens to take place on a spaceship in the future. But it's a, it's really about work and getting along and having good or bad bosses and. And stuff like that, too. I spend the whole time talking about Star Trek. There's so much to say about Star Trek. Well, I I mean, there's no denying that for the first few decades of television, there were limits on what you could do. I mean, there were shows that are outside what you're saying, like The Twilight Zone was a show that was able to do things in terms of like it had, but it had to fold its politics into the sci fi Mm. because you simply weren't allowed to talk about certain things on television. But I I actually, like, I'd love to talk about workplace shows because I agree with you that they are the DNA of TV. But I have this, you know, in that crazy, like, Monty Python, my theory, which is mine feeling about 
um, <laughs> about workplaces. To me, I get frustrated when there's constant comparisons of television to movies and books, even though I'm very interested in movies and books. I feel like for a long time there was this idea that the only way to elevate TV was to say, this is so good, it's not really TV. It's mm -hmm. like a movie, it's like a book. But one of the things about television is that it does have a lot of these ensemble shows that are workplace shows. And I think they're all shows about making television. I mean, I think whether you're watching CSI or whether you're watching 30 Rock where it's overtly true, all of those shows are shows about the problems of collaboration. They're about having an eccentric showrunner slash genius slash doctor or whatever, running a team of eccentrics and trying to get them to do something together. And that's how TV is made. And it's different than how other art is made. And so I think that struggle to collaborate and create something good and original is baked into TV. So you see it appear over and over again in different forms of TV. It's the part of TV that seems autobiographical to the lives of television writers, you know, and sometimes literally like breakthrough shows are often shows in which people are working through their problems, making good TV. So you get like the Dick Van Dyke show, which is a way of the people who worked on the first sort of hip TV comedy or show of shows talking about their experience. But I think this is true on shows like The Office as well. I mean, I, I think that that's one of the appeals of office shows in general. It's interesting what you say about Star Trek feeling more like an office show than everything else, because I always thought it was about patriotism and American values in this very appealing kind of seductive hmm. way. Yeah, I guess. Than, rather although, than a workplace thing, although I guess that's true too. My theory has always been the second iteration of Star Trek, the Jean-Luc Picard one, that's the place you wish you worked, right? Where the boss is incredibly enlightened. People really respect one another's differences. People, you know, see each other's strengths and weaknesses in a very forgiving ways. And that the first Star Trek with Captain Kirk, that's where you do work. The boss is kind of violent and sexually out of control and the science guy is estranged from his emotions and the tech people are lying and there's this kind of hysterical, you know, medical human resources guy who catastrophizes everything. I don't know, man. It's a wonderful place to work. First of all, everyone's incredibly sexy. There's this uptight professor from Gilligan's Island, like repressed scientist that you're just excited to see. Not scientists, but, uh, you know, what, what is Spock's job, actually? I guess I don't, well, close me. enough. We don't anyway, have to. Yeah, we don't have to know I'm the time. I'm saying there's tribbles. It's fun. I don't yes. think of it as. I don't think of it as like akin to literally The Office with, you know, the original British version of The Office, where it's actually a misery to be there. It seems very exciting. You get to visit other planets. Only the minor characters ever die. People are constantly being forced by magic spells to kiss. I, mm. I think that this, it's a very appealing workplace environment. But no, you you make you make a great uh, hold up under HR. Right, so. you make a great case. So in the, in the 1990s, we really start to see more experimentation and, and things that are kind of different, whether it's Twin Peaks, whether it's uh, X-Files, whether it's like something like The Simpsons. But one of the sort of quantum leaps for you is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Let's hear season one, episode six. The premise is that there's a high school field trip to the zoo, and now Buffy's friend Xander is being weird and a bully, and she goes to her mentor Giles to try to figure it out. And so here is that Exchange. Testosterone is a great equalizer. It turns all men into morons. He will, however, get over it. I cannot believe that you, of all people, are trying to scully me. There is something supernatural at work here. Get your books. Look stuff up. Look under what? I don't know. That's your department. The evidence that you presented me with is sketchy at best. He scared the pig. 
Well, he did. Buffy, boys can be cruel. They tease, they, they, they prey on the weak. It, it, it's natural teen behavior pattern. What did you just say? Uh, um, they tease. They prey on the weak. I've heard that somewhere. Xander has been acting totally wiggy ever since we went to the zoo. Him and Kyle and all those guys, they went into the hyena cage. Oh, God, that laugh. You're saying that uh, Xander's becoming a hyena? I don't know. Or been possessed by one? And spoiler, later the hyena-possessed guys eat the principal. So, uh, Emily, talk Buffy to me. Okay, I, I'm so excited that you played that scene because not only is the pack, as you know from the book, was my conversion episode. I always talk about how TV critics have backstories like supervillains where they were bit by a television show. And in my case, it was Buffy and this was the episode. And it's not broadly considered, I think, to be the best episode of Buffy. But the weird thing is I actually watched this episode last night because I just started watching the show with my kids. I felt like they were old enough to watch Buffy, you know, and as a good parent, I felt that I should bring them into the circle of love. So we watched this episode and it was, very satisfying to watch because as I think from that dialogue, it's obvious it's a very silly and campy show that works with these sort of outrageous setups, kids being possessed by hyenas. I mean, I don't know whether it comes across from that scene, but the weird thing about this episode is it's, it's the episode where the show turns because as Scooby-Doo, like literally as the episode is, you know, like literally, again, spoilers, it turns out that the zookeeper is responsible for the whole thing. He practically pulls off a mask. Incredibly dark things happen on the show, but there's this overlap in tones between sort of teen comedy and rom-com and sitcom and gothic stuff and sci-fi and fantasy with this broader metaphor that's genuinely about, in a lot of ways, what it's like to be a teenage girl in a predatory world. And that's what happens in this episode is her best friend. He basically tries to rape her because he's possessed by a hyena. And, um, and in the end, a major character on the show dies and is specifically eaten by people, which is, was really at the time that the show came out, a shocking turn. But I realized that now that we've all seen Game of Thrones and a million other <laughs> incredibly horrific pieces of violence, the 1997 eating of an assistant principal, or I guess he was the principal, doesn't seem like a big deal. I think this episode really holds up as a big turning point for TV. But the main thing about Buffy for me is that it is the one show, and this was before I was a TV critic, that I was a fan of, like in a very crazy fan-like way. Like I was online all the time talking about it. And I call it the show that turned me into a TV critic. And the reason was, I think it's a brilliant complicated, sophisticated show that does all sorts of ambitious things, both for its period and for now, and was very influential. But when it came out, people were not talking about it that way. I mean, there was a set of people who loved it, but it wasn't treated the way that like The Sopranos, another show I loved, was treated. And so it's always wonderful for me to hear the show because it has all of the qualities that I do feel like it's kind of my mission to celebrate that are often put down. And it's not a question of like this show is better than that show I mean both Buffy and The Sopranos are really fantastic shows but the difference I always say is that The Sopranos is the kind of show that people had an easy time talking about because they said it transcended TV it's like a novel movie and Buffy is very much a TV show as you can even hear from that clip it has a much more you know 
formulaic dialogue sound. And when you watch it, it looks very cheesy, but really holds up to me and I have enormous affection for it. So Yes. And there's a way I, I remember I had sort of a pivotal moment with Buffy and I, I can't quote you chapter and verse, but there was one episode where they basically had fended off some kind of incredibly apocalyptic threat. And then Buffy looked at one or two other people from the pack and said, I got to go home. I've got SATs tomorrow or something along those lines. And I thought that's what really makes this special. You know, it is that it is and it's one of the reasons it makes it episodic and domestic, something we can have in our homes. We typically don't want vampires and all kinds of other scary people in our homes. But there's a way in which, oh, but it's sort of Riverdale. I mean, the original Riverdale, too, you know, that she's got to take her SAT. She's like people we know. I know, but don't you think, I mean, at this point, people actually aren't inviting very horrible things into their homes. Some, right. of, some of these are shows like, I'm not a big fan of The Walking Dead. But I was pretty fascinated at the point that there really was a flip over to people wanting grotesque ultraviolence in their home. I do agree with you, though, that, that a lot of the pleasures of Buffy come specifically from that mixed tone. Although, you know, it's interesting because it's one of those shows that is a classical old style TV show because it took place over many seasons and it changed over time and mm. it kept taking increasingly ambitious risks. It's a show that started out feeling like a very familiar type of show for all of the ambitious things it was doing in mixing genres. It just looked like a regular show. And then it started doing, it did a musical episode. It did a silent episode. I mean, it really start. it really was part of a period where TV was able to uh, not always be the same thing every time. And I don't know, it's still exciting for me to look back at it. And you do really see the influence of the show, it, not just in the stream of metaphorical teen shows, but also just in, the broader sense that there are genres that go beyond the realistic that can go on TV. So you can draw connections between Buffy and later shows ranging wildly, like all the way through, like, I don't know, The Leftovers or something, where there are shows that are doing one thing on the screen, but they're also trying to talk about this grand philosophical idea through a broad metaphor at the center of it. Right. But, you know, Buffy was also, Buffy also came from somewhere. I mean, Joss Whedon, who created it, always said it was my so-called life plus the X-Files. So, mm -hmm. you know, everything has their roots. It didn't come out of nowhere. Right. So uh, I think we're going to pause here. I mean, I could happily pursue this whole line for another 20 minutes, but that would not be a good strategy. We'll take a little pause here. We're talking to Emily Nussbaum. Her book, I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution, is a collection of essays and critical appraisals and some reporting as well. It is, it'll just get you thinking very, very differently about television. And we hope to do some of that too right after this. TV is the thing this year. Radio is great, but it's out of date. TV is the thing this year. Last night I was watching old time mix. My TV broke and I was in a fix. I got on the phone to call my man and said, Get here, daddy, as fast as you can. TV is the thing this year. TV is the thing this year.
All right, so we're back with Emily Nussbaum. We're going to shift gears here to uh, a woman comedy writer who, in my opinion, basically is like the Charlie Parker of comedy or the Mozart of comedy in the sense that she has really kind of resyncopated the way that comedy is done uh, and, and bent the whole genre to her aims. And that would be Tina Fey, both in 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, and I, I just I couldn't be a bigger admirer of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, but uh, before we do that, let's have uh, a little clip there. This is from the very beginning, the very beginning. And one of the voices you're going to hear is very prophetically that of the actual real Matt Lauer. So here, uh, here is Kimmy Schmidt and the other so-called mole women who've come up from this bunker where they've been held for 15 years by uh, a deranged preacher who turns out to be John Hamm later. Here we go. Unbreakable. They alive, damn it. It's America. Subjects of that viral video, and joining me now for their first exclusive interview, the Indiana Mole Women. Ladies, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. For years, you were told by Reverend Richard Wayne Gary Wayne that the world had ended. Yes. Reverend Richard told us that there had been a nuclear apocalypse and that the earth was scorched and there were lakes of fire and stuff. Cindy, you were the first young woman forced into this cult. Yes, I had waited on Reverend Richard a bunch of times at a York steakhouse I worked at. And one night he invited me out to his car to see some baby rabbits. And I didn't want to be rude, so here we are. I'm always amazed at what women will do because they're afraid of being rude. All right, so it lands a little bit differently with the 2020 version yeah, of, of Matt Lauer. But uh, I also want to quickly point out Cindy Picorni there, played by Sarah Chase, who grew up not far from where I'm sitting. You know, Hartford actually is the Tigris and Euphrates of American television comedy. Norman Lear grew up here. So did Michael Schur, uh, who most recently created The Good Place. Uh, so, um, so, yeah. Well, I don't know. I have my own theories about uh, Unbreakable, but I'm not the Pulitzer Prize winning TV critic. Well, so you talk. First of all, I, I literally danced to the song while you we were playing yes. it. So it shows that it definitely carries on. I mean, that's it has such a great opening section. I mean, you know, Kimmy is a niche show. Not everybody is super into it. 30 Rock, I think, has a broader audience, but I do think it's fascinating. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's a very cool, smart show. And it's specifically because of that thing of making fun of something that you would think you could not make fun of, which is basically women being kidnapped and kept and tortured and by implication raped in an underground bunker by a crazy guy. And yet it's this brightly lit kind of Muppet crazy sort of spiky, super fast patter, multiple layers of jokes kind of comedy. And I think it's that contrast that makes it such a powerful show, but it also, I think, makes people very nervous. Um, I also think it's part of a, I mean, Tina Fey is great, but there's really been this explosion of great female comedy on TV from many different angles. And I don't think it's that shocking that a lot of it actually deals with trauma and sexual abuse and sexual trauma as part of the subject matter, because to me, that's part of putting more female stories on TV. It's not the only story about women, but it's, you know, comedy is about what's shocking and upsetting and this is one of the things but this show is very original in the way it deals with it because it's not a i mean you could absolutely watch it and i think a lot of people have without necessarily seeing what's right under the surface which is kimmy as a survivor who is has ptsd and is although there are, <laughs> there are literal jokes about it in the show where like she you know she wakes up in the middle of the night and tries to stab people 
Right. So it's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great show. But there, there's, have you watched? Um, there's this new show um, by Michaela Cole called uh, "I May Destroy You." It's very different. I mean, Kimmy Kimmy Schmidt is very much a sitcom. It looks and feels like a sitcom, and actually, it looks and feels not like a network adult sitcom, but kind of like one of those Disney Channel shows that's sort of like a tween, highly lit, brightly lit. I May Destroy You is a, is all over the place, but it has a comedic aspect, and it's also about a rape victim. Um, it, it's much more explicitly about one, but I think there's been like a real expansion in terms of the kinds of subject matter people are allowed to talk about on television. And the exciting thing about this is just that it's women creators doing it. Like Amy Schumer did this a lot on her show also. Um, so those are, those are some of the things about Kimmy Schmidt, but I think this is, a, it's exciting both because there are more female creators who use a broad range of aesthetics to do this. And because I happen to be a fan of using comedy to punch through taboos and deal with unsettling topics in ways that, that, you know, are able to say new things and not just teach and learn. Like this, this is a destabilizing show and I'm interested in a lot of destabilizing comedies. So this is a good time for me. (laughs) All right. We're going to take uh, our second and final break here. Uh, This is, as I feared, going way, way too fast. Uh, But Emily Nussbaum is here. It's good when a radio show goes fast from the audience's point of view, obviously. Uh, We'll take a break. Uh, We'll talk more about her book, I Like to Watch, when we come back. I bought a bourgeois house in the Hollywood Hills with a trunk load of 100000 Dollar bills. Man came by to hook up my cable TV. We settled in for the night, my baby and me. We switched round and round till half past dawn. There was 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and nothing on. Well, now, home entertainment was my baby's wish, so I hopped into town for a satellite dish. I tied it to the top of my Japanese car. I came home and I pointed it out into the stars. A message came back from the great beyond. It's 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and nothing on. All right, so we're back. I quickly have to uh, thank Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio, uh, making it possible for others of us to work uh, remotely. Kat's uh, the person producing the show. Uh, in the studio, the person who produced this episode is Jonathan McPants. Uh, he's the person who pulled all these fascinating clips together and uh, persuaded Emily Nussbaum to come join us to talk about her book, uh, I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Re- uh, Revolution. Uh, so, um, you know, Emily Nussbaum... Um, you and I actually had the exact same experience about one piece of television. So maybe I'm going to start here with this idea, which is I also I wrote a piece for Salon about Breaking Bad, where I explained that Walter White had turned into a monster and that's why he would have to die in the final episode. And blah blah. And I quickly found out in the comment section of Salon, which was not a nice place in those days and maybe still isn't, that very few people who were commenting saw it that way. They saw Walter White as this guy who had taken control of his destiny and was sticking it to the man. He was fighting the power. And what did I mean Walter White was a monster? And this gets into what you call bad fans. 
Yeah, I, I, I re- it's it's an interesting thing because I, there's this theory that I put forth that um, I call bad fan theory, and I discuss it in a different context in the book. I discuss it in terms of uh, all in the family and the way that people reacted to Archie Bunker. So I don't think it's just about a Breaking Bad. But no, no. The, the interesting thing, no, no, I know. I mean, it's it's a broader issue on TV, and it has to do to me with the thing about creating a television show that two different audiences read in two different ways. And this is frequently true with anti-hero shows. It's not true with every one of them, but I think it's kind of baked into having a character that is both a morally repulsive person and a tremendously charismatic center of action who drives the show. And is sort of there for you to both judge and relate to. And there can be brilliant shows like this, but I think Breaking Bad started as a kind of a moral response to this, where we're supposed to be about him as a monster and by the end of the show, and I have problems with the finale, personally, um, I feel like it changed. But the whole time I was watching it, like you, I was struggling with the comment section because I kept being like, I think this is this really morally complex show. This is a fascinating response to serial westerns and all this stuff. And then there's other people who are like, you go, Walter. Skyler is a bitch. Like, that was their response to the show. But I will, I, I've got to tell you a weird story related to this. A year after the finale... I was at the Javits Center in New York at a conference and it was raining really hard and a cab was out there that just came out of the blue. There was like only one cab out on 10th Avenue. Pulled up, I got in, I told the guy where to go. And the first thing he said to me was, "Um, I just finished watching Breaking Bad. It was very strange. (laughs) He had no idea who I was, I wrote about TV. And he said, you know, Walter White was a bad guy, but I really related to him in a lot of ways. And in the end, he was doing it all for his family. We ended up having a long conversation about this. The one thing I will say is at the time that Breaking Bad ended, I was talking about, I was taking advantage of my role as a critic to say, you know, TV creators can't say this, but I will say this. I feel like some people are watching the show wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm really wrestling with that. Like, how did people read the show this way? The more time that's gone by past that year and other years, I really started to see it as a problem that was baked into the show, not because the people making it are terrible people, but because I think there's actually something in the text of the show that demands that you see Skylar that way. And I didn't see her that way, but I think it's in there. And I think it's because they never figured out who she was. I mean, her character didn't make sense. And you know how we were talking about the the thing about Groucho Marx and Margaret Dumont? Mm. He's the Margaret Dumont in that show. And it didn't have to be that way, but it was. And I think it's because they were so concerned with the thing they were saying about Walt and about the freedom of his rebellion and all of these kinds of things that Skylar had to be the symbol of this sort of gross, know-it-all, health-oriented, liberal American rule system that he was rebelling against. So she didn't really get to be a person with a story of her own. And by the time they got to her, it didn't work. So I, I think it's a brilliant show that has this like poison streak in it, which is, I don't know, it's fascinating to me. But right, I know I, other people disagree and they really like the finale and they feel that if anybody reads it that way, they're wrong. But I've actually come to think that it's it's something that happened in the writing room. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, uh, you first know? of all, you know, I did a stage thing uh, with Vince Gilligan and some other people. And he seems like such a nice person. You know, it's he's almost so nice. I did a stage thing with him, too. And I had the same thing. By the way, this is actually where it came from. I did this stage thing. They did a series of the episodes in New York at a huge venue. 
And a guy in the audience got up and he said, hey, you know, Skylar's so awful. Like, it really makes it difficult to root for their marriage. <laughs> I said, I was like the moderator. And I said, wait, why would you root for their marriage? And Vince, who does seem like the sweetest person, um, he actually said something like, I mean, he, he'd been sort of tiptoeing around about the issue of are some fans of the show being misogynist? Because, you know, he's the showrunner of the show. He doesn't want to, like, criticize the fans. It's been an ongoing problem for showrunners. So, but I think he did say, I think if, I think people who see, he, he sort of, he sort of said, I don't want to tell people how to watch it and interpret it, but I don't see Skylar that way. Like, yeah. he's sort of. I, mean, I, I, I think I got him to basically say something along those lines, too. I do think, tell me what you think about this. I do think the latest iteration of this, and it's it kind of, I think, addresses the problem you're talking about, is Ozark. Because uh, here, the characters played by Jason Bateman and Laura Linney, you know, they're, they're both in on it. Laura Linney sometimes is playing chess uh, in a way that, that exceeds even the, the conspiratorial powers uh, of, of her husband. Uh, and you do see these two people who seem to have some core to them, not really a moral core. They've made one incredibly immoral decision, and now they're making a whole series of other decisions trying to get other things right. And, and I find that dynamic more interesting or at least more sustaining than, than I think I'll, I did Walter White uh, and Skyler. Well, there was something very pure and narrow about about that show. It was just really about four or five characters. So there was something smaller about it. I haven't actually watched Ozark, but I think there are a lot of different, um, there's a variety of approaches to this anti-hero stuff, some of which are more successful than others. And there's been a huge expansion of female characters that are in the central role in terms of doing wild or bad or rule violating things. But it's interesting when there's a couple, I mean, to me, the most successful version of this, because I haven't watched Ozark, so I don't know so much about that, but I do know about the Americans, mm -hmm. which always, and I have one piece that I wrote about the Americans in the book, but I, I, I could have written about that show endlessly. And I thought that that was the show that actually did this thing, which is to have antiheroes, but not, do not take the easy way out in get in turning the audience on and getting people to root for them by making light of what they did or making it seem fun. It, it, and that made it honestly a harder show to watch. I mean, people watch TV, especially a show like that to experience some kind of joy and liberation. And that show was often pretty punishing. Right. So, I think also it's very layered. So Elizabeth Who's by who has more of a go for the jugular, literal go for the jugular quality than Philip does. But why does she have that? Because she believes she's been indoctrinated, maybe, but she believes in this dream. She d believes in this Soviet dream. Uh, but, and also, but also it's because in the first episode, and this ties to what I'm talking about, about sexual violence on TV. I'm not saying this is the only thing, but I think it's an important thing, is that first episode is about the fact that she was raped in training. Mm -hmm. And so in order to believe in her whole life, she has to somehow believe it was worth it to go through that. Like she's, it, it, it literally cemented her in the cause because she spent years, that's her secret. Like she never told anybody that her trainer did that. And so she was able to have this fake marriage. And once she tells her husband, they make a real marriage. But it's true also that her just, she's natively, an icier person for mm -hmm. reasons that probably go beyond one individual trauma. But, you know, it definitely inflects her relationship with her daughter. Isn't it crazy? That, that show really, 
<laughs> causing you to talk about the people as stylized as it could be like they're real people. And I feel this nostalgia, like I miss them. <laughs> so that one I did think had a great finale. So yes, I, I, I totally agree. The f- finale to that really kind of did justice uh, to it. And that's, you know, Oh boy, we're just about out of time here. Yeah, I mean, we got, I'm sorry. Like, cause these are such interesting topics to me. And I'm always curious what other people think of them because a rich and good television show you can talk about endlessly. To me, the great thing about TV criticism is that it's always a conversation and right. the internet has made it even more so. And it's just a pleasure to sort of hear other people's sides of things in that way. I think that, you know, obviously people have conversations about books and movies, but to me, the satisfying quality of this medium in particular is because it takes place over time, you get to end, engage in these looping conversations about how the show has changed, how we've changed. It's really fun. Right. Part of the fun of getting together with certain friends these days is you sit down to dinner and somebody says, OK, succession. Let's go. Let's talk about it. What's happening right now? <laughs> and and yeah, it is a way of kind of hashing out our differences uh, and our similarities. It is it is, you know, uh, uh, it's a tie that binds because we're all uh, relating to these it's the public cameras. square. Yeah. But back when we used to get together with friends and have dinner, I mean, um, well, Emily Nussbaum, I don't know. There's only two minutes left. There's less than two minutes left. I dare not ask you uh, another question. Uh, but I do want to say this this book is it's really amazing. There's so much in it. I didn't dare talk to you about, I think, the most penetrating uh, essay of all, which is the, the one about h- how we handle the art created by repellent men. Uh, I would just yeah, sort that's of. That's my big. That's my big chest-pounding personal essay. Right. I was working through a lot of things. I was writing that piece at the height of the Me Too movement. I think so you're a little hard on yourself in that piece, to be honest. But we would have to do like a whole show just on that piece um, in order to to do any justice to that. So I think I'm just going to thank you and encourage people to get I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution by Emily Nussbaum, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to Emily, Jonathan, Kat, everybody else. TV is a place where the pursuit of happiness has become the pursuit of trivia. Where toothpaste and cars have become sex objects. Where imagination is sucked out of children by a cathode ray nipple. TV is the only wet nurse that would create a cripple. Television, the drug of a nation. Breeding ignorance, feeding radiation on television. The drug of a nation. Breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation. Breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of a nation. Breeding 